Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. It's what people do, not the position they hold, that really makes a difference. When I started this podcast series, Standout Life, I always knew that I would have this conversation, the one that you were tuning into today. I wasn't sure when, wasn't sure how, but I knew this was a conversation that was an important one to get out there. Today's guest has held many positions and seen sides of humanity that many of us are not exposed to. As a forensic copper, Peter Baines worked at the coalface of communities. Throughout his career, his work landed him in places like Bali after the Bali bombings and Thailand after the tsunami. It is both of these experiences that have impacted his life. Throughout this conversation, Peter provides a personal insight into the drivers behind our decisions and why when you hit rock bottom, sometimes the only thing you have left is to help others. And sometimes when you do, it can change your life forever. Over 10 years ago, he launched the charity Hands Across the Water. This is a charity supporting children at risk all across Thailand. It's a charity that has absolutely flourished and is continuing to over the 10 years that it has been going. I've had the great privilege of riding with Peter in Thailand on one of their charity bike rides. And if you ever get a chance, make sure you don the lycra and go over there because it's one of those truly incredible soul-filling experiences and it's because of Peter that this experience is what it is. Our conversation is real, it's personal and towards the end of the conversation we get we get real and in Peter's language we hear some of the tiredness but also the strength of his connection to humanity. Peter is just one of those down-to-earth people and for me this conversation was a reminder to all of us to ask for help when we need it. And it reminds me of how important it is to help the people in need around us. So make sure you carve out the time because this is a powerful conversation with the incredible Peter Baines. Peter Baines, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Ali. You're looking very comfortable. This is just what happens on a Thursday, right? hanging out with you. How could I not be comfortable? (laughs) There is, um, there's a ton of kind of jumping off points that I want to get into your story, your career, um, you know, the conversations you've had, the decisions you've made, um, the decisions you continue to make. Uh, but not everyone knows that you kind of started your career in the policing kind of realm. Why? Why would you, what, what was it that interested you? I guess it was, um, it's not uh, inconsistent with a number of things I've done in my life where there wasn't a lot of thought behind it. (laughs) You know, I didn't go through school thinking, I want to join the cops or anything like that. It was, um, I guess I I left school, got the marks, went to uni and went, what am I doing at uni? I only was there because I got the marks. What did you study? A Bachelor of Attendance. (laughs) (laughs) And... uh, um, you know, it was it was clear to me a couple of months in that this just wasn't going to work and um, I wasn't uh, what we'd call a studious person at the time, and which is funny where I ended up going with study. But, uh, um, I, you know, I left, uh, left uni and thought, well, what am I going to do? And 
I just worked in retail, which was a continuation of part-time work and then thought well, I might join the cops and um, um, put, put an application in and next thing you know, I'm down in Goulburn and uh, um, there it went from there, yeah. And it was something obviously you stuck with. So what was it that, uh, you know, why did you stay? I guess it was um, like as a young, like I was in the, I was in the police by uh, the age of 19 and, uh, um, and, you know, having kids now who are all that age, I think, wow, like that was so young to be in that role. And uh, um, like I think of the things that we were going into and I worked in uniform at Cabramatta in Sydney, which in the, uh, the, the late 80s was an incredibly violent place, an incredibly busy place. Uh, it was, uh, had a huge drug problem, had a lot of a very high murder rate and we also took in a large housing commission area, um, which was uh, a part of our area. And it was, it, was, it was a really busy place. And I guess I did four years there, learned a lot, had a lot of fun, as you do in busy places. I think it doesn't matter what, where you work, if it's busy, you, you know, you... There's things on the go, you're yeah. part of it all, you're putting your fingers... Yeah, that's place. right. And um, I left there in uh, 91... Um, basically, I just got sick of going to domestics, you know, as a young 20-year-old or, you know, early 20s, you're going to domestics, uh, you know, on a nightly basis and often multiple times and and uh, trying to provide advice to people who had been married longer than you'd been alive. And inevitably, we went in and if there was a sign of violence, well, um, you know, the, the male uh, ended up in the back of the police truck. We took him back and charged him and it was this you know, just this constant, um, um, you know, revolving system that we're in. And and um, and also at Cabra, we backed on to what was the uh, uh, Cabra Vale uh, RSL Club or Cabra Matt RSL Club and uh, had a big nightclub and, and three o'clock in the morning on a Saturday morning, the nightclub had closed and everyone had spill out. And because we were the next, we were next building, the, the police sign, which was illuminated, um, I think it looked, the drunks would look at it and say, oh, that says uh, go to for pizza, go to for toilet, go to to get a taxi. <laughs> and, you know, people are on the drink and in a horrible, messy state and you, you're on your second night of night work, you're exhausted. And, and I just got sick of that and uh, applied for a, a job within uh, the crime scene unit. So... Um, I guess for those that have no idea what that is, that's best described as like CSI, you know, the TV show. And, and our role was to uh, investigate scenes of uh, major crime, of suspicious death, of suicides, of homicides, of sexual assaults and fires. And, and that was, um, I guess it was somewhere where I found um, a real interest and uh, went on and uh, did... Uh, four-year science course and then I did a law degree uh, while I was at Sydney Uni which was while I was you know working full-time and spent 10 years in Tamworth and it was funny you know the the study I went on to do um, uh, you know given my early attempts at Wollongong Uni weren't all that successful but it was just a it was an incredibly interesting career the time in Tamworth 10 years on in the bush was um, um, was you know, remarkable. Like we loved it and had three kids while we were up there and, and country lifestyle just offers something special. 
but then for me, my career, um, I either had to make the choice of stay and continue to do what I was already doing for a long time or to leave and pursue um, opportunities through through promotion. And, and I guess it was the travel that we used to do at Tamworth. Like we'd work 10 days on then have four days off, seven days of that you're on call 24 hours and you could it wouldn't be rare for you to drive a thousand kilometres in a day and do a couple of crime scenes. And yeah, your regional centres are massive. You're, oh, it's just huge. And I just got sick of the, you, you get to a point where you go, okay, I've done this and you either need to change your attitude or step away and let someone else step in. And I was lucky I got promoted and came back to Sydney as an inspector and things continued to change from there. Yeah, and you... Had uh, you were kind of involved in some pretty monumental um, international kind of moments as well and I understand you were over fairly soon after the Bali bombings. Um, yeah. Can you describe what that was like, you know, stepping onto the site the first time you were there? Yeah, it was, a, I, I guess, from a, a timing point of view, I, I'd come back to Sydney as a, uh, as a detective inspector and, and um, that was in the January. Then the Bali bombings were the 12th of October 2002. And, and um, you know, a few days later I found myself in Bali. And, um, you know, Ali, it was, there was a time where there was few times, not through bravery or bravado, but probably just because of circumstances, there was only a few times in my policing career where I actually felt, you know, scared. Mm. And uh, one of them was... Uh, are standing inside the the crime scene tape of the Sari Club, and uh, it was a huge crater in front of me uh, where the L three hundred Mitsubishi van, which was laden with explosives, had been detonated. And um, standing inside that crime scene tape, and uh, on the other side of the crime scene tape, probably only you know two or three meters away, um, was a local Indonesian who had a motorbike helmet on a backpack and was just standing and looking at me. And, um, you know, the, the bombing in Paddy's bar had occurred with someone who walked in with a backpack on and self-detonated. And when we were staying, we were staying at Kartika Plaza in, uh, in um, Kuta there to do our work and the hotel was guarded by military. We, we were receiving bomb threats at the hotel, targeting the police. Um, we couldn't travel the same way to work each day to the mortuary, and and it was a pretty it was a pretty horrible time because we knew we weren't wanted in the country, and uh, that was made known. Mm. And um, so, yeah, being in Bali, knowing it was a criminal act, and two hundred and two lives had been lost, it was yeah, it was certainly a um, a significant and uh, um, and I think. Um, the impact had a far-reaching, uh, or was far-reaching on Australians. So did that feel more personal for you? That you know that sense of being scared, but also I imagine you're on you're on different soil, in a in an environment that's very unknown, yeah. and you'd seen some pretty ordinary acts of human behaviour. Yeah. But but I imagine a lot of those environments you you kind of had gotten known, and you knew who. Um, who was at the forefront of that? But here you are thrown in, having no idea who, who potentially yeah, might. It be was the next a, it was a strange feeling, and I remember flying home from Bali, and and one of the um, biologists, uh, Vivian, was was on the plane with me, and um, you know the plane flying out of Denpasar back to Australia by this stage was empty. You know, like we, 
you didn't have uh, a row to yourself. You had like a cabin to yourself, you know. That's <laughs> what we dream of with international uh, travel, right? Yeah. But not, not in and, that second. Uh, um, you know, I, uh, we got on the plane and, and for her it was like, you know, she was just so exhausted. And, and I said to her, you know, you just, you don't look well. And she said, I haven't slept for more than two hours at a time since I landed in Bali. She said, I've just been so fearful. And it was, yeah, it was just a, 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 you know, something that I guess service people must have to face and deal with. And for us in the police, well, you know, that wasn't the norm. Mm. So, yeah, it was something different. What helped you personally in that? Um, I think, Ali, it's, it's been the same in um, all aspects of my career. And, and there was a real turning point for me when I was in Ta- uh, Tamworth working and it was um, uh, country music festival time. And, and as a forensic investigator, the country music for us meant nothing because the people that came there came there with their, uh, their cowboy hats on and uh, thought that's what we wore in Tamworth, which we didn't. <laughs> but it wasn't, it, you know, the people attending country music, uh, they weren't your, um, you know, high criminals. And uh, so we really didn't see any change in work. And I got called out to a, a fatal farming accident. And sadly in the bush, you, you know, those things are too common. And, uh, and I got called out and um, went to a property and uh, went up to the, the sheds uh, where there'd been a uh, influenza in the chickens and um, it had swept through and a lot of the, the really big uh, uh, properties had had to cull. And uh, they'd been culling and um, I, I turned up and there was a body on the ground covered with a sheet. And as a forensic investigator, you know, I have to remove the sheet because that's been placed there after death and it's just for the comfort of the family. So it's, you know, it's not part of the investigation. And I pulled the sheet back and it was uh, a good friend of mine and it was the, the husband of uh, my wife's best friend. And our kids and their kids were all, uh, I could were all going to, had grown up together and, and they were all only young, they were just about to start school and it was um, uh, Laurie who was deceased on the ground, it was his wife's birthday that day yeah. and, uh, um, and why I didn't know or to suspect this was because he was working on his family's property and we'd only ever been to their house and, and I guess what I took out of that was... Um, it was, and it was just a tragic accident. But Louise, she asked me if she could only deal with me as opposed to someone from the police she didn't know. And I spoke to the coroner and he said, yeah, sure. So I did all the investigation and collected all the statements, which was well outside of what I'd normally do in the forensic role. But what I learned from that, and it was a reminder, was how foreign this was to that family. You know, I would go to death on a weekly basis and I assumed that the family knew why I was there. I assumed, or because it was so common to me, what would happen when uh, the funeral directors would turn up and take the body and why there needed to be a post-mortem and what the process was because it was so common to me. But working through that investigation with Louise, I realised just how, um, you know, Far, how far removed what I did was from most people's reality. And the lesson I took from it was the importance of that. And I think it really helped me, uh, and this answers the question of Bali, was um, providing answers to families. 
And it's something that I've realised that throughout my policing career and now what I do, for me, my clarity of purpose is about providing answers. Back then, it might have been to the coroner, it might have been to the family, it might have been to a, a, a Supreme Court trial, um, but it was about providing answers as to what happened or how it happened or things like that. And Bali was providing answers in returning uh, bodies uh, to loved ones. Yeah, so that, I mean, and I was going to talk about you, you, you know, you're so connected to such a humanity um, kind of experience now in the work that you do. Um, and, you know, that's come from a very different experience, as you say, which was, uh, you know, probably some of the worst of humanity mm-hmm. <laughs> that you kind of see in that. But that sense of purpose is really powerful, I imagine, yeah. even in your, yeah, what you choose to do and what you do now. Um, and it sounds like that essence of there is a family, that this is unusual, this is unknown. Mm. And if um, how powerful is it or how important is it for families to have an answer? Uh, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, by the time that we were involved, um, it was never good for mm. families. You know, I wasn't part of... Uh, a search and rescue. Yeah. We were there to identify bodies, put bodies back together and provide answers. And, you know, it, it is very clear the, for, from jobs that I've been involved in, families I've spent time with, that um, um, it's about having their loved one back so they can bury them with grace and dignity according to their belief and faith. And, uh, and that was what my role in Bali was about and my role in Thailand, which was a humanitarian response just on a bigger scale, we were returning bodies. And uh, and in the forensic area, we wouldn't spend a lot of time with families. And part of that was if it was a criminal prosecution, uh, I wanted to be able to give my evidence not based upon what people saw or thought they saw or what they felt. It was, it was an interpretation of the physical evidence. But by not having a connection with family, you start to lose or forget the significance. And that's a story with Laurie mm. and Louise. And in Thailand, some of the most precious moments I, I'll hang on to was meeting families. Some of the most difficult times was meeting families. And like you say, you did that on a mass scale. So you were there on the ground um, working um, forensically after the tsunami that hit Thailand and and many people listening will remember when that tsunami hit over 10 years ago now. Um, And you were some of the first on the ground leading leading a team on a a mass scale, so thousands and thousands of bodies and doing body identification and getting back back to families. Was that a big part of that that connection again of, of families needing answers? Yeah, it was, and that's why we were there. And, and and Thailand was a very different feeling, a different response, and we were there as a humanitarian response. Um, do you it, remember where you were when you heard that the tsunami I do. had hit? Absolutely. It was, I was on the south coast. We're at Sussex Inlet um, with my wife and kids. We're on holidays, and uh, uh, Boxing Day test had started and, um, and just seeing news flashes. I remember... It, exactly the moment that um, um, we saw it um, um, and it was, the, I think it was that first night where the, the size of it was started to be some appreciation. Uh, we were 
down there with other families and we were in the house watching the news and uh, all the adults were crowded around the TV uh, because it was obviously big news. And um, as it just started to come up and they started talking about the number of deaths, um, I just looked at my wife and we didn't have to speak and I knew that I would then go to Thailand and, uh, um, you know, and I reflect back now and I say, uh, you know, from that moment there's nothing in my life that remained the same <laughs> as what it was then. Yeah. You know, apart from having uh, my three kids, um, you know, we... We didn't speak that night to anyone in the group. I didn't let them know what I was thinking and, and neither, did, uh, neither did Nicole, but it was something that we knew just a look that, you know, this was going to be um, important for our family, but little did we know the significance. How important. Yeah. <laughs> That's huge. Yeah. yeah. So you were over there on the ground um, and because one of the things you do now, you've, you've started up a charity called Hands Across the Water, um, you know, which I've had the great privilege of being involved in the last couple of years and and um, had set up, you know, and, and have a number of homes and orphanages across, all across Thailand now, um, you know, some 10, 10 years after. But that that came mm. from, from that experience of you being on the ground. What was the pivotal moment of, of realisation for you while you were in Thailand, that first, that first trip? It's funny, you know, it's uh, 12 years on now and it's only something. Um, I was I was interviewed recently, and within the last six weeks or so, and I reflected on something that I hadn't really shared, and and uh, a time in my life. And in bet- I did multiple t- tours of Thailand, and normally for about a month at a time. And um, and when I wasn't in Thailand, I was working to deploy teams to Thailand because of the position I held. And in between um, my second and third uh, tour to Thailand, I uh, uh, separated from my wife. Uh, things unfolded, and and um, we and I moved out. And before I went to Thailand, I was basically living on the couch uh, at my brother's house because I knew that I was going to Thailand again. And I went to Thailand and. Uh, as my tour started to draw towards an end, I thought, well, where do I go when I get home? Hmm. I don't have a home. And uh, I thought best I try and rent something. And, and uh, uh, sitting in the office I had at, the, at uh, Tasha Chai, which was the, where we had all these you know, thousands of bodies, and, and then I started searching, thinking I need to get a rental place and tried to rent and they're going, well, you can't rent from Thailand. You need to come and view this and sign leases. And, and I got off the plane and um, I collected my kit bag from the luggage carousel and I stood there and went, well, where do I go? And um, it, was a, it was a really, I guess, challenging point and... Uh, um, you know, in the police, we, we, well, I was about to say we, well, they don't get paid a lot. And <laughs> yeah. uh, um, when I separated from my wife, um, uh, she wasn't working. And so I just continued to pay the mortgage. We had three kids in private school. 
and there ain't a lot left after yeah. you do that. And yeah. plenty of families would recognise that. And Rental options aren't looking so good. No. <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> I was issued with a police car because of the, the, the type of job I did. It was an unmarked car and went to Parramatta, picked up the, the police car, put my bag in the boot and went, well, now where? And, and for a while I lived in some um, pretty dodgy hostels because I couldn't afford anything. And eventually... Um, got a, uh, a rental property and it was, a, let's call it modest. <laughs> and uh, I'd paid the rent with that. And then I had $80 a fortnight to live on, which included buying food for my kids. And I was busted, you know, on every level, like uh, emotionally from, um, you know, the separation of, of and the breakdown of the family. Mm. Um, you know, what I'd come through from Thailand and, Whilst I didn't think it, you know, had much of an effect, uh, I'm sure it did. And um, you're going through uh, a separation. Friends choose their sides, and and uh, and I had no money, and I was on so many levels just broken. And uh, uh, then I'd received a call from the UK from a girl by the name, or a lady by the name, Jill Williams, who'd worked as part of my team. I was running a team in Thailand and it was a multinational team I was leading and and uh, she was from the UK and she said to me, you know those kids that we met? And I said, yeah. She said, what do you reckon if we tried to raise some money and build them a home? I went, yeah, sounds like a good idea. She said, what will we call ourselves? I said, well, you're in the UK, we're talking about Thailand, I'm in Australia, they need a hand, how about hands across the water? <laughs> she went, done. We started. And it was that day, you know, that I committed to do something for someone else, for these kids, without having an idea of how I was going to do it. I had no money. I, on all, as, as I said, I was just broken. And, uh, but, you know, I, I reflect, Ali, and it's only been recently that I've reflected and thought and shared this of, uh, you know, it was, it was such a pivotal point in time where, if you said, when's the best time to do something for someone else? <laughs> well, it's now. When you're down in it, yeah. yeah. And, uh, With whatever you've You know, got. if you wait until your house is paid off, until you've got this amount in the bank or you've done whatever, mm. well, the time has passed. And, uh, and it, it wasn't a logical thought. It just made sense at the time. And did it... Um it must have paid dividends to you as well in terms of that purpose and that focus. Because even I was going to ask you, I mean, there's, there's a big difference between raising some money, mm. um, helping out and starting a charity that has a legacy, mm. a, you know, a decade-long legacy. Like there's a massive gap between the two. Um, and, and you could have been felt really good about the first one, you yeah. know, raising some good money, yeah. putting together some walls and doors and going, I've done my bit. Mm. Um, so what's, yeah, why why keep going? What drove you? I think um, a number of things then unfolded. I started the, uh, started Hands or made the commitment to Hands. I was so incredibly naive around then what I was doing. All I'd ever done was worked in the cops, yeah. you know. I had no idea what I was going to do. And in between tours, I'd met a guy by the name of, of Matt Church who a lunch with him um, probably changed my life more than 
uh, 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 another individual over such a short period of time. And, and what happened was he invited me to share my stories around what I'd gone through with Bali and Thailand from a leadership point of view. And um, he did this in between my first and second tour of Thailand. And, and I actually walked away from that lunch and dropped his business card in the bin because I thought he can't be telling the truth. How could I have anything to offer people who run businesses from hairdressers to financial planners to engineers? You know, I'm just in the cops. And, and then when I had that phone call with Jill, I thought, if half of what Matt said is true around getting paid to speak and tell stories, well, perhaps that's how I can raise some money to build a home for these kids. So I started, I got back in contact with Matt and said, were you serious? Because if half of what you said is true, I think I should try and give that a go because that's how I build this home and, and started and started telling stories and and um, getting paid for it. And I used that money to build the first home or contribute to the first home with the kids in Thailand. And, and then at the same time, I got an opportunity through work uh, to work for Interpol in Lyon in France and working on an international counterterrorism project. And, and I took that and um, that was supposed to be 12 months of secondment. So I left New South Wales Police and spent time in Lyon in France. And, and while I was in France, I got offered an opportunity to do some time with the, the UN Office of Drug and Crime and on some capacity building and did that. And that got extended twice. And, and at the end of 2008, the police said to me, New South Wales Police said, we've been paying you and you haven't been here for two years. It's time to come back. <laughs> And uh, I went back and asked for 12 months leave without pay. And uh, uh, my boss at the time said, I oh, know I'm not going to support it. I said, okay, I'll take a, take a week off. I took a week off and decided that there was time to leave. And um, the start of hands was too important. And I knew that if I just went back to my normal policing duties, I wouldn't have the capacity to work for hands and that it'd be like any other charity. They would have had their run and a couple of years on they'd fade into insignificance. And, um, and it's the toughest part. Like I've worked with so many charities since then over the last, you know, 10 years and it's that hardest part is continuing. Mm. And um, it's like that second stage of growth, you know. And uh, But why do I continue? Well, it got to the point where I, I honestly believe it would be wrong and selfish to stop. I've had this, been given this opportunity and, and um, I, I get to travel the world and live an incredibly blessed and wonderful life now sharing stories. And, and from that comes this opportunity to raise awareness and distribute the message of hands and, and share experiences in Thailand with wonderful people such as yourself on these bike rides. And, uh, and I feel that... Um, where I spoke about being broken and at the lowest point when I started, well now, because I started to do something for someone else that I never thought would have any return for me on every level, I couldn't be richer in every measure than what I am now. And, uh, um, but why continue? Well, it would be just wrong to stop and it would be selfish to stop of me because of the difference we, we can make and we do make. Are there moments, because it's such a powerful purpose and it probably ties in to even your other purpose of wanting to provide answers mm. for families and, and uh, you know, some of these kids 
um, initially, particularly straight after the tsunami, you were supporting kids that didn't even have families to give answers to. Um, and and now there's you know there's so many centres and so many other kids that you're supporting for other other risks uh, you know other reasons that they're at risk. Um, are there times where you've had a really strong purpose um, but have just hit brick wall after brick wall and it's like things have kind of stopped and you're, probably, you're smiling looking at me going, <laughs> how many times do I tell you? But how do you, and that can be the experience for anyone, right, whatever yeah. it is, whether it's starting their own business, whether it's um, a project they want to be a part of, their own health and fitness kind of journey. They know yeah. why but um, and, it, and it works for a period and you mentioned before the whole bunch of charities, they, they start but then... Yeah. Um, things stop or progress kind of stops. Um, has that been your experience and what's helped you kind of keep battling through? Yeah, I think that there's a couple and the thing that comes up for me immediately and why I smiled when you started to ask that was sitting in a temple uh, called Wat Yan Yao in Thailand and uh, it was where three and a half thousand bodies were taken and they were in an advanced state of decomposition. They weren't in body bags. And I recall sitting with a leading pathologist and uh, um, he said, all that can be done here is a token effort. It was too big. Mm. You know, we recovered 5,395 bodies in Thailand and over 5,000 were repatriated back to their families. So we did much more than a token effort. But... It's easy to look at things which are so big and so daunting and I talk about confronting those type of things and as you said, it doesn't matter what, um, whether it's business, health or whatever the challenge is. When we look at some of those challenges, we don't know what the answers are. We don't even know what the questions are. But I've certainly found that um, action brings clarity and the more you do, the clearer you get. And, uh, you know, we had in Bali, we had one of Australia's most senior police officers who was so fearful of making the wrong decision, of getting it wrong. He just didn't make any. Hmm. And we had to send him home and replace him with someone who had the courage to make the right decision. Because if he would have made the wrong decision, we would have been better than making none. And, um, and I think it's um, people will, will forgive in the workplace if you act with good integrity, good intent, and you get it wrong. But uh, as leaders, uh, I don't think people forgive you if you fail to make decisions. We've got so many choices these days. I think it's that, it can be that decision paralysis. Yeah. That, and, and I'm sure you've seen it too. <coughs> <coughs> Where in the workplace it looks like, um, you know, focus groups and committees. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put this off. And, and really you're, it, all it is is, is fear. Oh, um, let me tell you, there's nothing better than being in the cops who we seem to have committees whose sole purpose was to set up sub- subcommittees, to set up focus groups. And, <laughs> and you'd leave a meeting with the only thing that had been resolved was to set the date for the next meeting, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's that action, but it's perfect. It's action that's moving things forward. Just make a call, mm, mm. and if it's oh, wrong, yeah. 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 And uh, uh, you know, I act now to the detriment of uh, um, those I work with and live with uh, of uh, having a, what I think is a good idea, and uh, um, we're off pursuing it before there's any structure or logical plan or scoping or anything like that. But hey, that's how I kind of operate. 
But that's how you started it as yeah, well. Like I love exactly that story. Right. He's going, yeah. I have no idea how we do this, but let's no. just have a crack and I've got no other option. Yeah. So we kind of keep going. So a big part of um, the story around Hands Across the Water and, and certainly the ongoing support is um, the bike rides that happen every year so people can sign up for an 800-kilometre bike ride. There's a, a northern and a southern, which I've done both. And my husband sort of says the, you know, 800 k's is the equivalent of, of cycling between Sydney and London. <laughs> it's a little bit different. When you're on the ride, it feels like that. <laughs> but a big part of what you talk about and why they are so successful is what you call shared experiences. Mm. Um, why is that so important? Um, for for a charity but also for an organisation, for individuals to talk about and shared experience? We want engagement, whether it's as a family, we want stronger family units. Uh, you know, the risk is, uh, you know, the more technology that comes into the house, the more disconnected we get, you know, with kids who spend more time on Snapchat or whatever the latest thing is that they're on rather than sitting around having meaningful conversations. And, you know, we see it in business and, and people want closer relationships and deeper relationships and more meaningful relationships. And and I think it's, it's just something that, you know, there was no brain child of mine. It was just something that we've, again, I've just stumbled into realising that this works really well, was that if you provide opportunities for people to be re- rewarded and the bike rides I talk about it as as food for your soul and for me the time I spend in Thailand is often uh, food for my soul and particularly riding you know through those beautiful areas and it gives people the opportunity to really develop meaningful relationships and and our growth we lead a number of corporate rides now and we'll have 10 rides from the time our riding calendar starts in November of 2017 until May of 2018. And and the growth is because businesses and groups are looking at this going, you know what, I can take my high-performing clients or staff and reward them and travel through wonderful places and take them and spend, you know, huge amounts of money on food and alcohol, but there's no meaning behind it. And uh, but what we're we're seeing the growth and what I'm witnessing is the strength of relationships that come out of doing something meaningful and challenging together. And it's you know I know in so many of your podcasts, Ali, you've spoken to amazing sports people who have achieved at the highest level, and I sh- I know that they talk about the bonds that are formed, um, and it's in sport and it's in really critical times and and in a lot of businesses, well, there's not critical times and uh, and we provide meaningful experiences, allow them just to to develop deeper relationships and, and it's a kind of nice thing to have, isn't it? Yeah, and it is a combination of those two in terms of meaning and, and challenge because, uh, you know, again, I was going to ask you, like, what's the difference between a shared experience and just hanging out? <laughs> yeah. And I think you've touched on those two. Have there been or what do you see as examples um, of 
people doing that, whether it's in their family environment or in a work environment. So if you were talking to leaders about how they they kind of went, this shared experience stuff sounds good, how could we get engagement? Engagement's massive in an organisational setting. Um, what kind of examples have you seen or what have you seen kind of work people connect with? I think the, um, you know, whether it's family or business, it's it's something that's meaningful for them and within their their, their ability ranges and and it's 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 what you do when you're together and it's over that time and uh, and I you know the talk about the the things that by way of example that make our rides uh, successful and why we have such strong numbers come back is is you know there's nothing more leveling than turning up at breakfast in your lycra. <laughs> There's nowhere to hide, and We're you know all that. The same yeah, it doesn't matter then whether you're the CEO of a big company or you're a you know you're a, a brickie. Uh, when you're on the bike, when you've got that shared purpose, and um, everyone just is levelled, and everyone can remove the you know perceptions and barriers that we put up because of titles and positions and and salaries, and and then you just have common purpose and. You know, you can't spend the amount of time that we do together and keep a mask up. And it's something that I've seen working in uh, um, in those crisis areas. I worked in Japan after the tsunami, Saudi Arabia after floods, Bali, Thailand, and and those that you work with, their true character comes out, and you really get. And you know, there's relationships with people I worked in in Thailand that I don't see often. But there's a bond that will never be understood by those that weren't part of it. And on a you know a less dramatic level, on the bike ride, you share bonds, you share experiences, you share stories that unite you as a as a tribe, as a community, or as some say, as a cult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there are absolutely bonds and connections yeah. that you just don't get in other um, parts of your world. And it's not just bike rides that you create. And I hands yeah. you there are. Um, you know, projects people can go and be a part of a social virtual program, um, um, treks and all sorts yeah. of things that you're really driving around this purpose and and challenge. Um, and there's been, you know, a lot of a lot of growth and a lot of impact that Hands has has made. You've got seven centres so, yeah. um, now, and I know certainly all the fundraising for Hands Across the Water, 100 percent of it goes goes to to the work on the ground and and supporting the kids. Whenever we do anything that is monumental, we put ourselves out there. Um, it's not only part of the Australian culture, but it's also, I think, a human kind of thing is that we can get criticism mm-hmm. um, and we get knockbacks and yeah. and um, people seeing things through their context and seeing things um, in black and white. And I know you've had that experience and, and going through um, probably a number of times, but certainly yeah. going through some of that at the moment. There's a lot of conversations around um, volley tourism and yeah. people coming in and um, should it happen, should it not happen and um, there's even a Senate inquiry going on at the moment. Um, how is that, how do you deal with, I guess, some of that when when you keep wanting to, you know, through your own purpose, yeah. give answers to families um, and and you're trying to make the call with the, the information you have at the moment? Mm. How do you, yeah, how have you dealt with some of that kind of critique? Yeah, I guess, um, Ali, there's, uh, you're right, there is a conversation occurring um, now around, you know, should homes like ours exist? And, um, 
Uh, I totally agree with those who say that, um, you know, the best place for kids uh, are in families, not in homes like ours. You've been to our homes, you know that they're beautiful buildings, they're happy, they're light, they're full of colour, full of love, but nothing replaces the love and security of a family unit. But that's when things are equal. And when things aren't equal, well, uh, in Thailand, there's, and where we operate, and I don't profess to say that our model is best for anywhere else. I know that what we've got with our kids in Thailand, there's three categories of kids that live with us. And um, there'll be those who have no um, relative uh, that they know of. So these kids might have, uh, have, have lost their mother, who may have died, might have from the original tsunami, you know, that was how we started. The kids had no one to take care of them. Uh, then, you know, in our HIV homes, many of the kids have been abandoned by young mothers who have HIV themselves, who work in the in the, the sex industry, who can't care for the kids who abandon them. Because it's still kind of seen as, a, it's still ostracised in the yeah, community. Yeah, absolutely. And the second category of kids we have is is those who have a relative, but that relative is unable to care for them. Now, it doesn't mean they don't love them. It doesn't mean our kids don't spend time with them, but it just means their circumstances, and it might be through an addiction to a substance, it might be through extreme poverty, it might be through mental health, it might be through physical health, that they can't provide a loving, caring and nurturing environment for these kids as much as they may want to. And then the third category of kids are those who are taken by the police from homes, from situations where they're either being abused, neglected or, or um, you know, or, or worse. And the, and the police bring them to our homes. The government officials bring them to our homes and because there are no other circumstances. You know, the... The Department of Community Services here in, in Australia is so overworked and has such a massive backlog. And despite the goodwill and intent and purpose of those involved throughout the system, it's it's so overworked. And then one of the senators said it's broken. We should start again here in Australia. Now, that's where a developed country. Now, Thailand doesn't have that. So if you close our homes down and push the kids into the community, who then and what resources is there to check that the kids have been loved, the kids have been cared for, the kids have been fed, the kids aren't used as sexual, um, um, you know, things there for those because that's why they've been taken out in some circumstances. And, and I guess, Ali, I look at it from based upon fact of what we've seen happen. Now, in th- oh, let me, if I can, just share three quick stories of kids that, that live with us. One is a young man by the name of Game who at the age of 12 was living in a family and living with an auntie and, and uh, he was in a vi- well, she was in a violent relationship with an alcoholic. They said to Game, you have one of two choices. You need to leave school and get a job and pay your own way in this house or you need to leave this house. And he's 12. So he went to school and said, I need to leave school because I don't want to leave my home. School contacted us and said, do you have room for one more? And we said, of course we do. He moved in. He was able to remain at school. Now, it doesn't mean that he's taken away from his family, but what it means is he can stay at school. 
he's out of that family of abuse and of substance and, and physical violence. And he remains at school. He completed year 12 and he was the first of our kids who then left school and enrolled in university. Two years ago, he graduated from Phuket University with a law degree. He's now employed as our general manager who looks after our seven homes in Thailand. And on weekends, he's studying his MBA. And uh, we look at the, the future for him, the future for his kids uh, when eventually they come. Mook, a, a young girl who came to us, spent 10 years with us. She has no known living relative. And uh, um, she completed her school. We supported her through university. She now works in Sydney, in Piemont, in an advertising agency. Uh, she graduated with her business degree. She studies um, English here. Now compare that to um, one of the 15-year-old girls who came to us and spent four years uh, living with us. Uh, she was rescued out of the back of a temple where she was living with her father who was a chronic alcoholic. They didn't go to school. They were lucky if they got fed each day and it was the monks at the temple who would give them leftover food. And um, they were brought to us by the government and said, can you look after them? We said, sure. She went home for a visit four years on. Dad's still living at the temple, still a terrible alcoholic and uh, saw that his daughter now was old enough to take care of him, wouldn't let her return to the orphanage. Her education finishes, she's no longer at school and uh, by the age of 15, she's now pregnant and has a child of her own. So at the age of 15, she's caring for her child, she's caring for her family, her father, her education's come to an end and we say compare the opportunities and the choices that the kids have got from Mook who's got a business degree working in, you know, here in Australia in an advertising agency and loves it and compare it to, the, you know, this other young girl who, Sal, who ended up with a child of her own at that age. And I just don't think that there's one answer for all. It's got to be looking at, yeah, the... You know, some of those, the stories that exist and the reasons why the conversations are occurring are dead right. They need to occur. The conversation needs to occur. We need to stop the exploitation and abuse of kids. But because th we can hold up examples of areas where kids are abused or exploited doesn't mean then that we close everything down. Yeah, it's not It doesn't one mean that one answer fits all, you know, and... A home hug, a, a place where a, a remarkable lady by the name of May Thill set up a home for kids who had HIV or who had lost their parents to HIV. I met her in 2010 and she's run this centre for over 30 years now. And uh, she will tell you that she has buried 1,027 children in the 30 years she's run that home. When I met her in 2010... The home was broken. The kids were sick, the kids were skinny, the kids were dying. They were dying not just on a monthly basis, but in winter for them, when the kids got sick, they were dying on a weekly basis. And she had to bury them. And uh, they would make coffins and they would bury these kids. And it was like a full-time job. And you know, HIV is not a medical problem anymore. It's one of poverty. 
And the reason these kids continued to die was because she didn't have the income. And this is despite this remarkable woman, and so deservedly, being voted Asian of the Year. Now, Asian of the Year, and but even with that recognition, it didn't bring sustainable income and support to her home. And eight years after that award, I met her and we started taking people at the end of these bike rides who would spend a couple of hours there. And here's what happened. The kids stopped dying. And since 2010, since we've been finishing our bike rides up there and we're spending a couple of hours, Australians are raising money and riding for eight days and spending a few hours there, the kids have stopped dying. I took an Australian doctor over there who looked at all of their health records and he brought them back to Australia and he went through them. I went and met him after he'd done his review and he showed me the graphs and he said, this graph here, it represents their CD4 count, their white blood cell count. And he said, when it sits under this level, that's when we say they've got AIDS. And he said, see, there's a point here in time where the, there was a flat line and then it turned upwards, their CD4 count rose. And he said, what happened here? And he said, well, I said, that's when we got involved. And he said, okay, the pattern here is these kids will still have HIV, of course, but their health has improved. They don't have AIDS anymore. And it's what we've done. And I know there are children there who are alive today who wouldn't be, but for those Australians who go there and participate and do these experiences. And you can talk about, you know, and the arguments are, well, we go there and, and it upsets the kids when we leave. Well, the alternative is we don't go there and the kids die. Mm. It's not an opinion. It's not, I'm not being hysterical about it. They're just facts. It's so powerful when you kind of hear those stories. And I think the other thing for me is often we can, we, we do see this black and white. We do see that it's either or and yet it's such a different story when you get curious and you get close. Yeah. Um, and what you're describing is the closeness of the stories on the ground. Um, and you're right, like, it, you know, we, we definitely need to call out centres or circumstances that are less than great or environments that are less than great. And as you say, um, you know, you absolutely want children and families to be get together and be given every opportunity. Um, but when that's not the case, it's not black and white, but the only yeah. way is to get in close. And so I think for anyone, anything that you're kind of sitting and going, no, 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 or yes, yeah. get in close, find yeah. the stories and and, yeah. um, and hear them and, and get personal yeah. around them. It's really challenging as well. So you're busy. You still speak a lot. You, you're on the road a lot. Um, you're constantly thinking, I know, about these centres and these kids and you can hear that in your voice. Yeah. How do you personally deal with busyness? What are, your, what are your ways of coming back to you when, uh, when, it, when it's all consuming? You know, it's, um, there's two things for me that one helps me deal with the busyness and uh, right now, two of our directors um, in the centres that we run are sick uh, with cancer. And uh, um, last week I flew to Thailand on the Wednesday. I spoke at a, a, for a group on the Wednesday night, got up at four o'clock in the morning, uh, flew down from Bangkok to Phuket, travelled up and saw the director of our original home, uh, Kunrochina, and um, she is incredibly sick. And 
um, and she's lost 30 kilos and, and you know, Ali, sadly, her time is limited and uh, I think I can probably get one more trip in um, and it will be the last time I see her. And it's just, it's wrong that um, a lady who's given so much of her life is um, uh, confronted with this insidious disease for the second time. And But, you know, I flew to Thailand Wednesday. I was up at four o'clock in the morning. I got down, I had an hour and a half on the ground, 45 minutes with her. Um, and a lot of that time I just held her hand and we just talked and and she drifted in and out of sleep and she's in so much pain. And, and I left and flew back to Bangkok and flew home. And... Uh, you know, all that occurred in such a short amount of time. But just uh, seeing her and that connection of, yeah, that's why we do it. Mm. Yeah, it's what people turn up, they give of themselves. And, uh, yeah, it's that's it's the people on the ground, isn't it? Mm. It's so powerful. Um, yeah. And you can see that that fuels you mm. <laughs> in amongst the busyness and... And gives perspective sometimes to the things that piss us off, <laughs> whether it's traffic yeah. jams or whatever yeah. it is. And it's right, you know. It's um, um, and it's that type of stuff. When I you hear the, you know, the criticisms we just spoke about, and the the people who have uninformed opinions, or people who think that they have the answer for everyone, and and I go and see the lives that have been changed there in such a remarkably positive way. And I go, that's okay. Yeah. We'll continue to do what we do and we'll look and we'll learn and we'll listen and see what else is going on. And But um, uh, we're creating more good than not. And that message too of getting um, in amongst the, when you can feel like you're a bit lost, is get back to yeah. why we do what we do oh, and yeah. gather the people around you who remind yeah. you of that. Yeah, like the, you know, the... The work that um, I live a you know a, a very fortunate life. There is no question, but it's it can be incredibly uh, tiring. As mm. you know, just because I'm in this sector, it's no different than everyone who's in. You know, whether you're a mum running a busy family or you're just trying to you know grow your business or succeed at what you're doing, we get exhausted, and and um, and I get exhausted with you know hands and and sometimes a sense of responsibility. You know, we've got to raise uh, $1.8 million a year just to keep our centres open. Mm. And, um, you know, and 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 you, you can't take your foot off. You know, you've got to keep going and growing. And, you know, we've got 47 of our kids now who are all at university have come out of our homes. Game was the first and, and which is an incredible thing, but it all costs more money, you know. Yes, yeah. Each time we have more kids go to uni, it's... Uh, it just keeps pushing those costs up. But then each time I go to Thailand and it only needs to be for a short time, I see the kids and um, you see the homes and you see the difference that's been made and you go, yeah, that's what it's about. Yeah, mm. yeah, finding those energy spots for yourself as well mm. in amongst all of that. Um, and it's, yeah, important to kind of keep keep coming back to that and keep having those people around you that... Um, that are there and going to help out as well. How important is it asking for help? Uh, it's not something I do well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really poor at it, but it's, um, yeah, I, I wish I was better at it. 
and um, and by that statement, I think it's really important. And uh, a, uh, you know, someone who been fortunate to meet Graham Cohen, who's uh, heavily involved in Are You Okay and written a number of books back from the brink, and a man who's battled demons and um, you know and risen above and and um, and talks about you know on that level of asking for help and we need to and and it's a culture that's sadly uh, within Australia and particularly Australian men mm. uh, that we we don't ask for help we don't visit doctors we don't you know talk about meaningful things like you know like chicks do and uh, um, and we should yeah. Yeah, it's a courageous thing to actually yeah. do. Yeah. I could keep going on, I think, in this conversation, but I do want to come full circle. The name of this podcast is called Stand Out Life. When I say that to you, what comes to mind for you? What does it mean to live a standout life? I think it's, um, um, and I don't want to sound clichéd, but it's certainly feeling that uh, you've done... Uh, your intent has been pure and you've done more good than harm and 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 it's not about achievement of you know big or wonderful things you know and I talk about the measure of the success within hands and we can talk about we've raised over 20 million dollars and never spent a cent of donors money on administration or fundraising and talk about the number of homes and number of kids and number of meals and they're just measures, but the most important thing I think is for us, it's around the choice that we give the kids when it comes time to leave our homes. And I think whether we're uh, running a business and making paper clips or, you know, we're creating opportunities for those that we employ and families that we provide for. And, and I'll speak at conferences and I'll often have people say, it makes me feel, having heard my story, they say to me, makes me feel what we do insignificant. And I understand what they're meaning by it, but in some way I, I certainly reject that because I think it doesn't matter what we do. You know, if we're making, if we're a business, it's not about help, we're not all there to help humanity, but we're providing for families. And if we do that with a pure intent, um, I think that's a standout life if we're, if we're nice people, <laughs> you know, I don't think it has to be a lot more uh, deeper than that than just being a nice person. And it makes an impact on the person in yeah. front of you right now. Yeah. Thank you so much, Peter, no, for sharing thanks, your, your story and your message. And, um, yeah, here's to the next 10, 20, 30 years. Thank you. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.